0: okay right so and this is 23 yeah
1: yes i'll try to keep the clicking to a minimum i've got all the windows open now so
0: Okay, welcome everyone. This is episode 23 of Tokyo Jazz Joints. Thanks for joining us. This is actually the first of a three-parter, which we're going to entitle Heading North to Meet the Dawn. And we'll explain a little bit more. Probably those of you who are familiar with Jazz Joints and the project will have a pretty good idea what we're talking about. But uh, as you know, we were based in Tokyo, uh, and this time we're heading directly north to take in um, about eight places, I think, uh, before we get to part three of this series James, uh, how the hell are you? Uh, Feeling pretty good, man. We've
1: uh, had a really bad bout of hot weather here, so I'm looking forward to a cold beverage. Um, As I think I mentioned to you offline, I, I did a very rare session of home DIY today. Which, um, after two hours, completely reaffirmed (laughs) that I'm not suited to such activity. But uh, talking about jazz joints is much more up my alley. I've got plenty of beverages ready for our exciting trip up north. How are things in Ireland, though?
0: Well, uh, I've been banished to the kitchen today. Uh, Sarah's on a job, so she's working nights out filming in the forest at three in the morning. And uh, she's uh, currently sleeping, so... If I'm talking a little quieter today uh, and you hear uh, at various points the dog coming in and out uh, and the hum of the fridge, that's because um, I've not got my usual recording spot up in the bedroom with the door nailed shut. But uh, hopefully that won't affect uh, anyone listening too badly. I've actually got some news, James, in, in another um in our tradition of breaking exclusives on the podcast. Um, had an interesting week, sent out a few emails in a fit of peak there uh, a couple of days ago. And I'm excited to tell you that uh, we've got an interview scheduled with Black Forest. Black Forest is the jazz kisa in Buenos Aires run by Yali and someone called Marcella with whom I haven't had any contact yet. But next couple of weeks, we're going to get together match up the time zones, and we're going to do an interview with them as well.
1: Well, that is just wonderful news to hear, and fantastic. So now we've we've got Asia, Europe, North America, South America. Um, I mean, what's going to be next? Antarctica? Is there a jazz cafe down there that we can contact? Well, I mean...
0: Never say never. So (laughs) listen, this week we're going to kick off with a place called Mingus, um, which I think you haven't been to. And again, Mingus is one of those names that that comes up uh, a few times uh, inevitably. And I know that we did go together to Mingus Coffee up in Sapporo, which we'll talk about certainly uh, in a later episode. But this one's actually in Fukushima. And if you're not familiar, again, with Japanese geography, you may have come across Fukushima for... Um, less than salubrious reasons I suppose it was the centre of uh, potential nuclear uh, risk after the tsunami in 2011 there was a power station there it was destroyed quite badly and obviously that affected the area um, in many different ways and I actually went up to Mingus um, on my own on the trip uh, that I came back to Japan for a couple of years it was back now in June uh, and July of 2018 and Mingus I mean it's one of those places, I think, you know, I had my rail pass, which is obviously was a first, because you can only get that if you're a tourist. And to be honest, you know, as you're sitting on that train, you're thinking, is this going to be worth it? You know, you're, you're looking at a couple of hours on the train, pretty tedious. You think, I'm just going to mm-hmm. get there, go go visit this place, photograph it, come back. Well, I have to say, like, I was definitely not disappointed. And if you're looking at the site, if you're looking at com, if you check out Mingus, I mean, you can see even just from the staircase alone, which is just adorned with these uh, hand-painted pictures of jazz legends, all really uh, brightly coloured paintings, and I mean, just a beautiful way to to enter Mingus. And when I got there, uh, the guy hadn't quite opened, actually, so I sort of tentatively knocked on the door, did the usual spiel. Uh, And of course, you know, again, he was very welcoming when I said I'd come from Tokyo to visit the place. He was like, oh, come in, come in. He was actually doing a bit of uh, prep for that evening. And uh, he insisted that I sit down. And not only that, he insisted that I tried his signature curry. And, you know, probably from living in Japan, when you say curry, it's not necessarily always curry you're going to get. But actually, I have to say, he made me this beautiful kind of Japanese style curry. Very spicy. Very spicy right up my alley and I just sat there at the bar and chatted away to him um while I ate this curry and had a drink and it was just one of those again experiences that you just think I'm glad I got here early I'm glad I made the effort uh, and I think the photographs speak for themselves I mean it was a huge place to be honest like um, Yeah you
1: I, you um I mean it's funny because you mentioned the the stairwell but when I was looking at the pictures um earlier today getting ready for tonight And I was struck right away just by the the alleyway that it's on, you Mm -hmm. know, as soon as I saw that alleyway with that sort of rundown building that it's, it's, you know, with the the kind of rotting wood there, the key coffee sign, um, the Mingus sign itself, Days of Wine. Roses and Jazz. I was immediately hooked. I was like, I don't care what it looks like inside. I love this place already, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously that stairwell is just glorious with those paintings. Um, and then he's got the the base, you know, the base there in the stairwell with, yeah. with the jazz open Mingus sign. So so before you even get into that big room, you're already kind of knocked out just just looking at that decor, and um, it seems a lot more spacious than the average Tokyo joints we go. I mean, obviously Fukushima is going to have much more room. The buildings would be a bit bigger, I would think, uh, the spaces. Um, But did you get the feeling, talking to him, you know, um, was it a place that would be packed on a Friday night? You know, was it just only regulars? Was he really shocked that you walked
0: in? He was definitely shocked, yeah. I mean, I got the sense that he he was not uh, unaccustomed to people coming, actually. I mean, I think he mentioned at the time that the local university – you know, we've talked about these kind of societies and associations, and I think uh, musicians from the local university were heavily connected to it. So um, he was bringing in these kind of groups of students to come and um, and perform there and uh, jam and stuff like that. And then he, he knocks together food and drinks for them, and does different deals for them. So, you know, they obviously have that base level of customers. And I, I assume there's regulars as well. By the time I had left, there still wasn't anyone there. But like I said, gone quite early. But what was really interesting as well about the place is it's not only if you look at the photographs, you can see in the main listening area you've got the speakers uh, This all these beautiful sofas that you can sit on um, but actually then he took me downstairs and you can see in the uh, one of the latter photographs there's kind of one with red velvet cushions and mm. uh, that picture of Miles down at the back so down below he actually has this full on live space as well um, mm. for gigs and stuff so it's not only one floor it's, pr- it's maybe the only jazz joint that we've ever been to that was two floors oh but he yeah
1: ha- yeah for sure I mean it, it's the, the amount of space that and um, it's funny because at first I'd forgotten that you told me that he had that basement thing. I mean, how often were the games going on? It looked like the lighting was all set up. So it must be fairly regular, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it didn't, I wasn't blowing cobwebs off anything, so I think it's mm. used pretty regularly. He had switched the lights on specifically to give me an idea of sort of the feel, and uh, he kind of hung around a bit while I took some photos. But again, massive space and, uh, yeah, facility for doing live music. So well, one right, of these- the key coffee sign says disc and live, so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the, the not the sign hanging at
1: the top, right? So the last picture you caught there, so it would mean that he's got it at least a couple times a week for sure.
0: Yeah. So it's one of those places, you know, again, like it, it'll thrive, I suppose, because uh, it's um, it's there and there's a need for it. There's a demand for it. You know, um, it's not probably competing with a lot of other places. And again, I mean, nice to see in the context of, you know, Fukushima have been hit really hard, both in reality and in terms of reputation in Japan and, and beyond, um, that somewhere like that is still going strong and thriving. And it's funny, actually, just looking at the... Main sign. I notice it says "Days of Wine and Roses." And uh, the other day on Instagram, I was happened to be in the park and took a few photographs of roses, and that's exactly what I was posting on Instagram, <laughs> uh, completely unknowingly, and it was not in any way connected to this. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Mingus was a fab place. Again, I'm so glad I made the effort. I think I, I'm pretty sure I just went up for it, and then just came back to Tokyo. So
1: yeah, it's gonna be. It's on my list of places as soon as we can do a little more. Um, you know. Uh, traveling with ease uh, when things uh, improve a bit. Uh, I I got it on my list number two to go. I mean, the murals alone. Look look at the look at the Joe Zawinul on the steps there. <laughs> I know. And look at the, all that jazz with Mingus, and I mean, he's obviously he didn't just pick that name by random. Look at the amount of material in the photos that says Mingus's name, <laughs> including the albums. You know? Uh, I know. So I would love to go up and have a chat with with him. Um, I forget how it was. It uh, we heard about Mingus. It must have been our friend Jazz Kisa JP. I think. I think it
0: was on the map, yeah, and I think Mm. it stood out because it was the only one in Fukushima, certainly. Exactly, which is unusual
1: too because Fukushima City is uh, not particularly small and usually most of those cities would have two or three, maybe even four or five spots, but I I think that's the only one there.
0: Yeah, I I don't remember even having anywhere else on the list to go check out. Um, So, yeah, I mean, great way to start um, that day and a great way to start um, the podcast today. So... That was a place I went on my own, obviously, and hopefully you'll make it up to it. Uh, We're going to move on to a few places then that we went together. And and the first of, of those is Count in Sendai. And I know certainly, again, if you're familiar with the project at all, you'll probably have come across Count. If you've been to any in Japan, it's more than likely you may have been to Count. And certainly Mike... Uh, Mike Peden of BBE and J-Jazz fame, uh, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Tony, uh, he had mentioned it as one of his standout places that he went to. Uh, It's safe to say that we weren't disappointed, were we?
1: No, not at all. And Count is one of the, I would say, half dozen places that everyone who um, fancies himself a jazz quesaten explorer like us, that rare breed of dork, uh, has mentioned Count. You know, It's one of those places that everybody... (laughs) Everybody's mentioned and so we were really looking forward to getting there and, and no without a doubt it didn't disappoint I mean, I think it, it's got pretty much everything that uh, you expect an old Japanese jazz cafe to have It's got a huge record collection. It's got the photos on the wall the amazing audio system I don't know if you remember how loud it really was in there because we went in I think it was about already 6 p.m. That's sort of weird in between time when mm. the cof- the customers drinking coffee are going out out and the people who are starting to drink booze are coming in. Um, but it was very difficult to have a conversation in there. I mean, he was kicking the music really, really loud. Uh, very, very dark. And man, was that guy Mr. Cool or what? I think we did mention him when we talked with we uh, did, yeah. Mike a couple weeks ago. But you just have a little kind of glimpse of him in the photo that you have of me and that couple at the bar. But I think he um, he's the kind of owner who would just sit at that stool for eight straight, ten straight hours, not really saying much and just putting on record after record and smoking two packs of cigarettes. Um, Yeah, just a a fantastic space. Um, Everything about it was perfect, you know? And do you remember that couple? They were really into our project when we started chatting with them, and they told us that when they travel around Japan on business or vacation, they always make it a habit to search out the, you know, hidden jazz cafes. Yeah. I mean, we felt like an immediate kinship with them.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I notice your bag makes an appearance there at long last in the um, in that photograph in particular. But what draws my eye in that photograph, apart from obviously yourself, is those beautiful circular shelves that he's got the bottle keeps on at the back uh, next to that store, that enormous collection of records. And like you say, yeah, he just was off. It's really nice too because you can see if you look on the photograph that actually, uh, which is a big thing in Japan, you know, things being sectioned off and and having an assigned purpose. And you can see there, there's a kind of a half screen between the the main Mm. bar counter in his little section where he had the stereo. And like you say, he just was on that stool most of the time, always listening in, always attentive if anyone wanted to order, Mm. but uh, just not getting in the way, just letting people do their thing and enjoy the music. And it was, again, one of those places like that we've mentioned many times now that just uh, it, it had just that beautifully... Perfect amount of wear and tear I remember the 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 black vinyl chairs being sort of taped up here and there with masking tape and the faded picture of Coltrane and and just those pictures you know that at one time much like the paintings in Fukushima in Mingus and Fukushima that you know must have looked so new and so vibrant at one point in time now they've just got this beautifully aged yellowing sort of effect and It's just a gorgeous place to sit. And of course, you've
1: got a a bit of the portrait of him. uh, Sorry, the the photo of him uh, with the Count himself, with Count Basie on, on a tour of Japan. I believe he said it was 1970 or 71. Um, so, Count Basie would have been already about almost seventy years old, but mm. was still touring with the big band to Japan every couple of years. And you, it's funny because you can see the master; he's so young, he's on the top right, looking a bit young, goofy, and embarrassed. Mm. Um, you know, meeting his hero, and then forty, forty-five years later. Uh, We walk in and take a picture of it. I mean, it's just perfect. It captures everything that's so wonderful about these cafes, you know. And, uh, you know, that's strange because you mentioned how it's kind of, um, it's got a mixture of the very lived-in feel with the seats and the old pictures. And yet the bar was immaculate, you know. And that's not always the case in a lot of the jazz uh, keys that we go to. He kept everything really spick and span there. Um, You didn't see a lot of the old dusty bottle keep bottles that we've mentioned in other places you know like Corner Pocket or Samurai um, so I think he was functioning very much as a cafe and a, a nighttime bar because he opened up pretty late um, but really just a wonderful spot and Sendai is, is a town that I, I don't think gets enough credit um, for people who are visiting Japan as tourists they tend most people as you know tend to go down south or west you know Kyoto, yeah. Hiroshima, whatever but Sendai is an absolutely lovely city and it's a game Gateway to a lot of interesting things up north, um, not even just jazz-related, <laughs> like we went up there for. Uh, so, if you find yourself, if you're listening and you're coming back uh, or coming for the first time, in Japan, um, definitely take a trip up. It's not very far on the Shinkansen, and you can experience a very, very different part of Japan that most tourists don't get to.
0: Yeah, and I think as well. I mean, if you look at the the very first photograph of the entranceway and and the sign down in the in the background there, I mean. I defy anyone really to look at that and and put a year on it. You know, it, it's almost unidentifiable in terms of area.
1: Yeah, absolutely wonderful. And it's really strange because uh, as we'll transition uh, out of Count, um, you know, later on in this day, when we ended up going to a place called Cabo, which was yeah. just down the street from Count, and uh, we saw, uh, well, we were waiting to get in uh and uh, there was gig going on by the drummer tamaya honda who i know peripherally just to chat with and when i told him while we were up there he immediately said oh no no come with me you i'm gonna show you this great place and he and i was like wow did we miss somewhere and he took me around the corner to count <laughs> and i said oh yeah we've already been in there that was our first stop in sendai and he just started laughing he was like oh everybody loves count you know
0: we never got um, we never got to the bottom or certainly we never asked who the other person in that photograph is but again I'm probably uh, it's probably fair to say that that photograph was more likely taken up in and around that Sendai area which again we'll focus on a little bit later in this episode and there's an element perhaps of a picture of count there as being foreshadowing for the third episode in this series but certainly mm. it just testament to how far and wide a lot of these American musicians traveled in Japan, you know, that wasn't a case of flying in and out of Tokyo. They genuinely went all across the country and played for audiences in, in halls and, and jazz bars. And, and, oh, yeah.
1: Um, I mean, we've emphasized that before. I mean, you know, the equivalent being that, say, some, somebody famous coming to perform in New York in Carnegie Hall, but then taking the train up to some medium-sized town in New Hampshire or Maine to put on a couple gigs, and having like 500 to 1,000 fans come and swarm them. That's what it's like in Japan for these jazz guys, or what it was like back then. It's almost unthinkable today, but we've seen it again and again in all the regional places that we visited. They always have these kinds of photos. I was guessing that the guy in this picture shaking hands with Count Basie would have been like the local mayor, or a local official who helped to sponsor the gig, you know, because you can see how, how the Count uh, Master is sort of standing behind a little. He's, you know, he's younger, he's sort of a little shyer. He, he wouldn't dare to like interrupt the photo and shake hands himself, you know? Or I suppose um, it could
0: have been the promoter, even just the person who actually organized it. Um, and it's
1: funny because we've seen the same version of this photo at least half a dozen times, where mm. they're sort of surrounding the artist with big smiles on their
0: faces. Just beautiful. Can you hear the dog uh, drinking there? I can, yes. Okay. What is the dog's but
1: name, by the way? I've never heard.
0: Just call him the dog.
1: He must have a name.
0: Penny. Penny. Oh, it's a she. Penny Lane, yeah. Oh, got it. Um, I'll just wait till she's done. <laughs> it's usually quite long, too. Quite a thirsty dog. Yeah, so that was Count. Um, definitely worth visiting. And, of course, as you mentioned, Sendai uh, probably... Vastly underrepresented in terms of uh, tourist visitors and so on, and it's only about an hour, I think, now in the Shinkansen from Tokyo, so definitely worth mm-hmm. a visit. So on that same evening, James, and uh, this is a place that we have actually referenced previously on one of our milestones episodes. I think it was the hundredth place, wasn't it, that we went to? Uh, was, it was Kelly? Mm. So Kelly, um, I don't know, think I don't think we need to necessarily go into a lot of detail about Kelly, but uh, suffice to say, it was um, a nice way to finish off the evening. Tiny little spot, felt very much like a like a snack or one of those kind of just general sort of um, small bars that had been turned into a jazz place. Although we're not sure if that was necessarily the case, and I think we had kind of the juice that it was named after Winton Kelly, was that right?
1: Yeah, we did. He had a nice um, flyer, and po- a couple of flyers and postcards of Winton Kelly up on the wall. Um, yeah, we covered, if you want to hear in detail about Kelly, you can go back to episode number three, Major Milestones. It was the hundredth place we visited. A beautiful little local spot on the fifth floor of a building uh, full of snack bars, hostess bars, and little wine bars. I think it was the only jazz bar in the building um, probably not a place that a lot of strangers pop into. I know that he was surprised. He was very welcoming, the owner there, but he was surprised that we came in, and not just because we were... Not Japanese. Um, I do remember him saying something like almost all his customers have been longtime regulars. So there's a lot of bottle keeps uh, up behind the bar. Uh, very, very small place, but certainly one that you'd want to pop into if you lived in Sendai. Uh, you know, I think it's the kind of place you'd come after a meeting. I know a lot of Japanese people, when they have to do the very boring, long business dinners and drinks that can be very exhausting, um, will pop into their local bar on the way home to really relax and sort of have a couple of quiet drinks and that's the kind of place that kelly felt like uh, that you'd walk into uh have a couple quick ones and then walk to your home you know down the road uh, but definitely worth stopping by if you get up to sunday
0: yeah Okay, so yeah, if you want to, if you want to hear more about Kelly, uh, go back to episode three. Uh, alternatively, you can have a look on the website under the joints. It's in the regions tab, uh, K for Kelly, and uh, you can see the photographs there that we took on that momentous evening when we hit our one hundredth place, so a number that we previously could not have imagined when we began the project. So we're going to stay in Sendai and um, move to um, another K. Uh, this time, Cabo. Now, Cabo um, probably. Uh, Not the place itself, but the experience of going there, or rather waiting to get in there, generated probably one of my favourite images from the entire project. And I suppose if you had to sum up the human cost of the project... It would be this image. Do you want to just talk us through it? Give us an analysis well, of that image?
1: Well, we, we got to go, go back. We got to have a little bit of detail here. Um, we went up to not just Sendai, but we went up to Iwate Prefecture. Um, basically, in one day, we hit six or seven, I forget now, places. Starting out, I mean, I left my house at five in the morning and took the, the Shinkansen up north. Um, and before I even met you, that morning, uh, I went up and and, cl- <laughs> and climbed a very, a very large hill to see uh, one of the famous temples. Uh, Up in Iwate Prefecture. And this was in the middle of the summer. So um, after getting up at that time, climbing the hill, um, dealing with the heat and then wandering around to various jazz bars where I believe we started drinking at 1130 in the morning, Uh, at least I did, which we'll get to on another episode. Uh, By the time of this photo, I was pretty close to zero. And, uh, you know, we had to wait outside I think for a good 45 minutes because we showed up and there was a gig on and people were standing outside. We couldn't even really see in the door to get a feel for how big the place was. But as you captured in the first picture there, you can see the sign Modern Jazz and Snack, but you can see it's an alleyway with little places to drink and eat. Um, it's a very strange building. Uh, I think you captured it really well. It's the kind of place you see in, in cities like Bangkok or Manila, <laughs> where you just yeah. wind around these alleyways with endless numbers of small shops and you get completely lost. That would this, That's what this huge building complex was. And so um, at Cabo, we saw at least about eight or nine people standing outside the joint drinking. And listening to the gig because they couldn't get in. So we just decided to, okay, we'll just wait. It's got to be over soon. And I think that's when I just had a a little tiny nap for about 15 minutes or so, uh, next to a rather sad-looking garbage can.
0: I mean, if we wanted to get into metaphor and and photographic analysis, I mean, there's a lot in that photo, just the placement of that bin. Uh, But...
1: I don't want to make, don't you, don't don't wanna you, make you feel uh, any
0: worse than you already no. feel about the image. So, <laughs> well, you know. you
1: know, a lot of people have asked me because I, I think uh, we may have shared that on social media a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, people asked me if that was posed. And I was like, No, man, it wasn't posed at all. I was taking a breather, you know. Um, But uh, other people asked, seriously, it was like, wait, I don't understand. Like, you're doing a jazz project. What would you be doing in a building like that? I mean, there's still people who don't really get it. They think of, and I mean Japanese people uh there's still japanese people who ask me and like why would you be in locations like this if you're going to to photograph jazz clubs they still have the image of jazz sometimes as being a real swanky thing where you know you're dressed up to hear somebody sing on stage and it's like well no the majority of places that we are going the majority of jazz spots in japan are located in these kind of buildings very run down very old often in a rougher part of town and so this this you know, kind of sad-looking stairwell with the garbage uh, nook in it, I think perfectly captures at least 75 to 80% of the spots that we've visited around Definitely, the Definitely, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that someone would ask about the photograph being posed because, as I've mentioned previously on some of the other episodes, what I try to do uh, pretty much all the time, really, is to photograph what I find in these places. You know, we don't want to dress them up in any particular way. We certainly don't want to stage anything. Um, and it's... And complete fitting, I think, with the rest of the project that uh, what I also found on that staircase that evening uh, in between some sort of uh, electrical box and a bin was you asleep. <laughs>
1: well, no, you see, I wasn't asleep. I was in deep contemplation. And it's, ah. you see, because I, I I consider myself not quite at his level, obviously. But if you notice the other picture that you, you have in this Cabo section of... Of uh, a pensive, deep in thought, John Coltrane, um, yes. holding his uh-huh. fist up to his mouth. You see, we, we sort of share that that spiritual connection uh, as right. as Jasmine, right. you know. So I, I think you can also see that you know the power of Sonny Rollins, uh, deep in a solo in concentration, the f- the beautiful picture that's in the door to Cabo. So as a, as a trio of of portraits, I think he captured it perfectly.
0: Um, I mean, if our listenership takes a sudden dive after you comparing yourself to John Coltrane, I will hold you entirely responsible. (laughs) It will not be because of my photograph. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) What's interesting about the photographs, though, as well, I think as a set, uh, it's probably not escaped your notice if you're looking at TokyoJazzJoints.com at the moment that they are predominantly of the exterior. And there was kind of a reason for that because we got there at the end of a very long day, as you've mentioned, James, um we were pretty tired um i still had the energy to photograph uh, unlike some people but i think you know it, we we sort of got there sat outside and and at one point probably toyed with just not going because it, i think we were so exhausted um when we finally got in it was a bit disappointing in terms of the interior there wasn't really a lot to photograph um a few chairs Uh, maybe one picture on the wall. And then I think the rest of it was really just a painted room. Well, what Um, was
1: interesting is that, yeah, it's very, very small, uh, but they had the layout because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they had a live gig that night of uh, Honda-san's trio. And so after the gig uh, ended, almost all the people quickly left And the band and some of their friends started to have dinner. And so, but they said we could stay because, you know, I I knew Honda Santos to say hello and we had a drink. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but we sat at the very, very tiny triangular shaped bar in the corner. As you mentioned, I mean, we were pretty beat by that point. Um, I do remember the uh, female manager of Cabo giving me an extremely fishy eyed look when I said, oh, uh, can I get a ginger ale and vodka, please? I mean... I didn't think a ginger ale and vodka it was that strange of a drink, to
0: be honest. <laughs> That's was, right. That's what it she, was. I remember that. She gave
1: now. me a real side eye, man. I remember that. And I was kind of really offended. I was like, gee, you know, come on, man. It's a refreshing yeah. drink. It's summertime, you know?
0: Yeah. I, I just remember sitting at that bar thinking, I'm done today. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, was, a, it was a long old day. Well, so, it, was, um, it was
1: late by then, too. It was, it was almost 11. Um, you know, we mentioned we've been up since super early to go up north. Uh, we moved around to so many different spots, and it was hot. So, and obviously we drank a lot. So, I mean, it was it was a long day. But, but Cabo, a very interesting tiny little place. I, I am intrigued the fact that they're open every day for lunch, even though it can only fit about ten people. Um, and as you got in the the picture of the alleyway there, you could see there's a bunch of other places to eat and drink. So, I think it's the kind of building where no matter what time of day you go there, some of these places. Are going to be open. Yeah, combo will be open for coffee, lunch, or like the live gig at nighttime.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, as I've said many times, you know, always worth visiting um, the place. However. You find it, uh, and whether or not it ranks in the top twenty or thirty, uh, they're all an experience, and definitely, if you are up in Sendai, worth swinging round for a nightcap. Um, so, just to finish up uh, this first episode of the three, uh, when we're up in the northern regions, then James, I'd say probably the way that you talk about it, certainly it feels like it was one of your favourite experiences. And just to set the scene again, um, I think we took a train from somewhere that we were previously, to one of those stations, if you've been in Japan, you'll probably recognise, it, it feels like the station's been dropped out of space because it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Mm. There's a huge plaza in front of the station with maybe one or two shops maximum. And I know certainly to get between the station and uh, Ray Brown, which is the last place we're going today, we had to take a taxi on both occasions. And I think when we took the taxi from the station to Ray Brown, the guy was, he he seemed a little surprised when he stopped at the address that we'd given him. And we said, yeah, this is this, we're we're just getting out here. Because you you can see from that. I
1: mean, you forget not just that, but like the guy's face when we got into the cab at this station because um, you know for people who've not been to Japan we're we are now way way in the northern part of Honshu yeah. Island um, this is not a place where a lot of tourists if any get to and so um, yeah we had come from Ichinoseki station uh, a couple stops maybe and well actually another 60 or 70 kilometers north um, and uh, we had just come out of um, as we're going to get to on a later episode one of the most famous places in japan so we were coming out feeling really buzzed in more ways than one and uh, we get out at this station which is you know a brand new shinkansen exit but literally in the middle of nowhere and we jump in the cab and the guy just looks at us and he he looks and looks and looks and when we speak japanese he gets a big smile on his face and i have in my notes really friendly taxi driver can't understand his accent (laughs) (laughs) because um, he had quite a thick local northern Japanese accent, which is a dialect that is a little bit tricky if you're not used to it. I think you do better with that than I do generally on our
0: travels, but I had trouble understanding the dude. Well, it's funny you should mention that because, I mean, this has never come up before in any of our conversations, but I did wonder. I'm glad that that's the reason because I do do often feel like that I'm often just abandoned to deal with the dialects. And, I mean, I don't have any... I I spend all my time in Tokyo, so I don't speak in any dialect. Either, but like I do find sometimes I seem to be the one that's responsible for decoding, and you just kind of switch off. So it's good to get confirmation that that's actually what was happening. Well, Philip, it took six months. It took
1: six months for me to get your accent, and that's in English. So you can't expect me to get Japanese (laughs) dialects very easily. It is pretty damn difficult. But um, touche, Yeah. So the guy drops us off, um, and and we're in, and and again, northern Japan. um, To be to be fair. There's a lot of beautiful mountainous areas, um, but there are also a lot of very economically depressed, um, gray, very cold, uh, barren locations all around the northern part of the island. And this uh, city of Oshu in Iwate Prefecture certainly was economically depressed. There was not much going on. Strangely enough, though, uh, Ray Brown is located in what was uh, pretty much a, a very brand new house.
0: Um, and it, it was just t- like it was in a housing estate. I would describe it uh, in mm. in the nicest sense of the word. It was just a, a brand new development of houses, uh, and he had basically opened this place. On the first floor of his house. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I mean, from the outside, had you not seen the Ray Brown signs, you would have driven right past it because you'd have thought, well, obviously that's just, a, you know, that's just someone's house. Mm. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And I think when we went in as well, it was pretty dark. Like, so it was, it was. You can see from the photograph, it was sunny that day, but when we went in, it was like stepping into another world because it was pretty dimly lit. Uh, as you can see, all painted in blue inside. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't necessarily, you know, give an appearance of of it being a particularly well lit place. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that we met, of course, as we walked in directly opposite the door, is the photograph that you see of the double base and this absolutely astonishing picture of the owner on his wedding day, and accompanied by none other than the actual Ray Brown and his wife, who were who were in attendance at the wedding.
1: I mean, uh, do you remember we just did a double take because we (laughs) (laughs) immediately realized what it was? And by this point, we've been to over a hundred places together. We've seen a lot of pictures of, you know, Japanese jazz bar owners with various musicians at gigs, et cetera, et cetera. But to see the guy's wedding portrait and he's got, and it's clearly in Japan, you know, it's not as if that they were in the States and happened to meet up. I mean, it's clearly here and you've got a, a, you know, a smiling Ray Brown and his wife uh, in in, in this guy's wedding photograph. It's unbelievable. And And I think what's amazing about
0: the the photograph, too, if you want to get into the photographic analysis, (laughs) I would say arguably he's closer in the photograph to Ray Brown and his wife than he is to his own wife. (laughs) Well, priorities, man. I mean, come on. He didn't name the cafe after his wife, did he? Good point, good point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The story of this, I suppose, is, if again, if you're looking at the photographs, tokyojasdorance.com, if you go to the Ray Brown page, you'll see here um, the owner... Uh, as a younger man dressed in this very snazzy red blazer and he's picking up Ray Brown from the station when he visited this area of Japan so um and and this gorgeous handmade sign welcome Ray Brown so again just a reminder of how uh, many jazz musicians that visited Japan went to the far flung regions of the country to perform and obviously from this particular trip that he was involved in he struck up this friendship with Ray Brown that then enabled him to eventually, when he got married, invite Ray Brown back to Japan for his wedding. I mean, it's just astonishing. And again, this is not in Tokyo. This is not uh, in a cool or hip neighbourhood. This is literally in a suburban housing development in, with with the greatest of respect, Pretty much the middle of nowhere in Northern Japan. I mean, Japan. Two,
1: easily 200 kilometers north uh, of Tokyo and not very near any other big cities. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, needless to say, we were just completely gobsmacked when we saw these pictures, you know. And so, of course, we sat down to talk with him. He was a very, very kind gentleman named uh, Sugawara-san. And he explained that, uh, like a lot of the other cafes, um, if you listen to last, last week's show, you remember we talked about Negishi-san at Moka. And Guma, who did a lot of promoting um, in that part of the country, well, Suga Wada-san uh, was involved in that as well. And those photos of him picking up Ray Brown uh, at the station and strangely giving him some sort of what looks like a Hawaiian lei around his neck—I don't know if that's a right. yeah, Northern yeah. Japanese custom or not. Um, I think anybody listening not, to this, um, anyone listening to this podcast, will know who Ray Brown is. But if you're not very familiar with his career, I'll just give you a quick recap. Um, at the time of his death in 2002, when he was 77 years old, Ray Brown was the the, the most recorded musician in history. Uh, he appeared on over 2,200 uh, recordings through his wow. career. I mean, that averages out to about 40 uh, per year. So pretty much every week he was in the studio somewhere recording with someone whether his own group or as a sideman. So he played with everyone. Um, He was considered one of the master bass players of the 20th century. And the sheer amount of records that He played on is just incredible. I mean, think about that. He played on over 2,000 recordings. And when you walked into Ray Brown, the cafe, you got the feeling that Sugawada-san had collected every single one of him because the picture, uh, the the two pictures you got of his collection don't capture everything. And he told me he had more in his house as well. So this guy was packing in at least five, six, maybe 7,000 records in his house. Yeah. You know? Um, But a really, really kind guy. Um, He was, again, of course, a little surprised that we found his place. Um, but he sat and talked with us. He told us all about, you know, the, the concerts uh, that you got the pictures of. He told us about the wedding. He said that uh, Ray Brown really loved Japan because he felt that the Japanese audiences could appreciate the music for what it was without any of the connotations of jazz being black American music that black musicians had to face in America. And he felt that the Japanese appreciated him as an artist. And so he always looked forward to his trips Mm. here. And it was just so touching to sit and listen to this conversation. You know, it was unbelievable. I mean, this guy was really, uh, this guy's built a temple uh, to his hero and then his friend. You know, and it still got it going years later. I mean, what a remarkable place. And as you mentioned, this is literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah.
0: You know, yeah. And there was no one there either. I mean, he kind of switched on the lights for us, really. Um, He wasn't expecting customers, certainly, at that time of day. I I loved this place. I mean, I just, again, it's probably one of those places that you look at the photographs with a certain amount of sadness because you think to yourself, it's very unlikely that I'll ever be back there. You know, that was the one opportunity to go there and enjoy it. And I'm just looking at the moment. There's another beautiful picture of him with Ray Brown, again, as a younger man and surrounded by just those stunning uh, concert ticket stubs. I mean, there's that oh, McCoy Tyner un- one, un- Art Blakey. I, I mean, it's l- just incredible, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, look uh, at that. And, of course, then Count Basie down the bottom right-hand corner, if you don't read oh. Japanese, uh, you can see right down the bottom right-hand corner, Count Basie. It's so just a reminder, again, that he was up and very active in that region when he did visit Japan. Yeah, I mean, what can you say about Ray and, Brown? Well,
1: Tsukawara-san also is responsible for, for one of our most... Um, Well, everything about Ray Brown was unexpected uh, because we did not know anything about this. We should really emphasize to to all the listeners, Philip, we didn't know anything about this place before we went. We had no idea what to expect. And as we've noticed, there's always a theme in Japan. You know, we have a lot of Miles bars. We talked about Mingus. There's various Monk's bars. There's Birdland. There's Bird uh, in Osaka. Uh, But Ray Brown, obviously very famous as a bass player, but not on the worldwide level of fame as those other jazz musicians. So I guess we should have expected something unusual. Um, And uh, not only to be encountered with all of this, but Suga san asked us maybe the most (sighs) shocking request that we've gotten on our trip.
0: I mean, would you say? I think it's one of those things that you can't help but laugh, and then you're just racked with guilt at the thought that maybe the person thinks you're laughing at them. But it was so genuinely surprising. Um, I'll tell you my version of it, and then you can correct uh, (laughs) anything. that. uh, But all I remember is sort of sitting there chatting, uh, taking some pictures, and, you know, you, you were having a conversation with him, and then he found out that you were from America and something kind of clicked in his head. And he then basically confessed that in about, I think he said 72 or 73, that he had gone to a concert and taken a Super 8 film of Quincy Jones that was performing. And in all these years, he still had this footage of Quincy Jones. And basically what he was asking you, being that obviously all Americans know each other, was, was there any way that you could get this video to Quincy Jones?
1: Yeah, that is, you, you got it. You got it right. I, I had it in my notes two large question marks two large exclamation points oh uh, i'll get on the jazz hotline to quest productions as soon as i get back to tokyo <laughs> because i mean i don't uh, even even given the fact that he you know he's surprised we're there and maybe he thinks we're like visiting jazz journalists or something maybe there was some gap in the in in the explanation of what our project was and he thought we had come from the states I don't know but that request just floored me I mean the fact that he would think we could easily get in touch with Quincy Jones let alone that he's got this you know decades old super eight footage of
0: it is uh, I mean it it might be testament to how much these these places have addled our brains actually in some ways because I then did start thinking right now Because I think there's a beautiful, uh, there would be a beautiful sort of poetry in actually getting that and and the story of of going there and getting that footage to Quincy Jones somehow. I mean, my brother-in-law is a music producer in LA. So my first thought was, okay, maybe he would have someone that would have a connection even with the production company that might be able to get you an Mm. email address or something. And, you know, it would make a really interesting documentary in itself of just trying to get that footage. And, And I mean, it was silent footage in the sense that there was no audio, recording that mm. accompanied it was just the video footage, but I would imagine anyone, whoever you are, would love to see something like that and, and to hear the story behind it, but uh, unfortunately well, I, we didn't really I, I get also, any further with I
1: also like the fact that he was so sincere about it because I think if he had been from a very much younger generation, he would have just somehow got it transferred and put it up online and figured that, look, you know, it's in Japan, you just put it in Japanese on YouTube, nobody's going to find it in the states. Nobody's going to make a copyright claim or whatever. Mm. Um, and you know that probably would have been that would have been the end of it. You know, but but being of that generation and also being someone obviously uh, who respected and loved the music so much, I think it would be completely you know out of character for him to 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 uh, probably you know use it without permission. And he wanted to do the proper thing.
0: Um, exactly. I think he did mention YouTube, didn't he? Because that was our first thought, of course. And mm. then he, he, he sort of said, oh, yeah, some of my friends have told me to do that. But like you say, he was kind of reluctant to do that as uh, in terms of a sort of a copyright or, you know, wh- whose property it was. But I suppose, like, you know, I mean, it, it is his property. I mean, he took this video at the concert and... My God! Like it was forty odd years ago. So yeah,
1: and I don't think I don't think Quincy's uh, lawyers are sitting there trying to pull down grainy... Super 8 footage from YouTube no, that that somebody so. took from Japan um, and and probably Sugawara to just be like, hey, look, I'm buds with Ray Brown, you know, and Quincy would love that. So, uh, but yeah, doors. maybe that's a different uh, a different adventure for another day. If we're still in lockdown in a few months, we could pursue it. Um, now, it's as you mentioned, it is. Extremely uh, unlikely that anyone listening to this podcast will ever find themselves in Osha City in Iwate Prefecture, northern Honshu, Japan. But if you are nearby, uh, or if you are riding the bullet train up north somewhere else, um, take the time, take a couple hours. Get out at Mitsusawa Station, grab a taxi, go to Ray Brown, and you will never, ever forget it. Unquestionably a top 10 place for me of the, in the whole country. Uh, and I can't wait to get back there. I'm going to have to try to go back at least once.
0: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Definitely uh, worth going to and a very, very special place in many different ways. So uh, do it. If you're in Japan, if you're anywhere in that region, definitely get down to Ray Brown. You won't regret it. So, James, we're going to wrap things up today uh, for part one of the three-part series where we're heading north. We're going to stay up in that same region uh, and pick it up next week for episode 24, where we're going to be visiting another few places. Including a
1: couple other very unexpected joints. So I'm very excited about that. Absolutely, yeah.
0: Um, just a shout out to Brian of Grooves Ahead, who um, I know from uh, various events in and around Dublin. He has volunteered to mix down the sound every week. So on a Friday or a Saturday, he gets a wee transfer from me full of files. He does no, it not unquestioningly. Very wee this
1: week, is it? <laughs>
0: No, he does it unquestioningly. He, uh, he does it voluntarily. Uh, he's a big fan of Japan. He's a fan of jazz joints. Uh, and he's a bit of a star all around. And he's rescued some of our um, audio misadventures as we've sort of learned the ropes of recording this podcast in two different countries. So big shout out to Brian and many thanks for all your help each week. James, um, until next week, uh, you look after yourself. Take it easy and we'll talk next week, yeah? You too. Be safe, buddy. All right. Cheers. Ciao.